Now would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, while I read our morning's passage of Scripture. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Slava Bogu. Praise the Lord. This is his word. So good morning, everyone. <laughs> Colossians three twelve to 14 is our text this morning. And I invite you to pray with me as we begin Father in heaven, you have worked marvelously in our lives by opening our eyes to the reality of the gospel and calling us your children, bestowing your great love upon us. You have made us to be like Christ, even though we are not in and of ourselves. And therefore, you call us to put on things like compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience call us to bear with one another, to forgive, and to put on love. And oh, how we need to do these things, because they not only fit with the person of Christ, but they are the very reason that you have set your love upon us. So this morning, Father, whatever it is that you want to accomplish in our hearts, I pray that you would find us ready and willing to listen, to hear, to respond And that you would raise up a group of people with blood-earnest commitment today to put on the new man in new ways. We need more compassion, more kindness, more humility, not less. So use our time in the Word and my words, whatever fit with this text. Lord, please birth new thoughts of how we can become like Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Jeremiah was about five years old, he loved to play hide-and-seek in the house. It was one of the few games that he really understood how to be able to play well with mom and dad and his brothers. And he had gotten beyond the phase when he had to hide with somebody. And he could either hide by himself or, better, he could be the one who was searching for those who were hiding. And um, one of the fun things about uh, that in season of his life was that he would try and find us and the trick was to be sure we didn't hide in too good of a spot lest he get discouraged and he would run around the house and he'd say something like this dad where are you dad where are you and to make him a little you know uh, more attentive to the game and into it i would do something like look up here look up here look up here mike and then he'd oh, i heard you dad where are you and then i'd knock on the wall, and I heard you, Dad, I heard you, Dad. And so he would run around the house trying to find us. 
one point in time, we lived across the street from the church in a, a parsonage, and it was a smaller home, but it had the bedroom, the bathroom, the kitchen, the living room were all connected kind of in a circle, so the kids could kind of run around the whole house kind of a thing, which they did frequently. And uh, I, I found a hiding place right next to the refrigerator, and the reason the hiding place was really wonderful was because it was not only a hiding place, but I could watch the entire game from where I was hiding. And that was a great spot. I could see Jeremiah as he'd run to the kitchen, and he'd run through trying to find me, and I could watch him and just kind of laugh. And, of course, he'd again, Dad, where are you? And I'd make some noise. Well, I noticed that while I was hiding in this spot, that I could look from my spot and see in the window, in the kitchen, a reflection of the bathroom. So in my hiding spot, I could actually not only watch all the traffic in front of me, but if I look, I could actually see into the bathroom, and I could see him coming around. And as he's coming through the bathroom, suddenly he stops... And he sees me in the reflection in the window. Now, this created some category problems in his mind. He stopped, he looked, and he stared. And I stopped, looked, and stared. And there we are in this stare stalemate with hide-and-seek. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and neither of us knew what to do. And then he did something that I'll never forget. He looked at me, I looked at him, and he went... He waved. So I didn't know what to do, so I waved back. And then he waved again, and then I waved, and then I started laughing out loud. And he's like, oh, I know where you are, and he came and found me. He grabbed my legs. He said, Dad, I got you, Dad, I got you. And then he looked up at me and said, Daddy, I got you, but I saw you, Daddy. I saw you, and I got you. And his mind, he couldn't, he didn't have a word for what was happening. And the word is the word reflection. It's an image of the original, right? So he could see his dad, but that wasn't his dad. We're playing hide and seek. He knew his dad was in the room. He just couldn't tell where. And he could see the original. Um, well, he wanted to see the original, but all he could see was the image of me in that kitchen window. A reflection is an image of the original. And listen to Romans thirteen fourteen. The Apostle Paul says this, put on the Lord Jesus. Just think with me a moment about what he's saying. Put on the Lord Jesus. What he's calling in that text in Romans 13, 14 is for us to be the very reflection of Christ. We're to literally have actions and attitudes. We're to have a frame of mind that, that really looks like Jesus. And what happens is in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14, Paul helps us understand what he means in Romans 13, 14 about how we put on the Lord Jesus. Or how do we look like Christ? Or how do we become the reflection of Jesus Christ to the world? That's what our mission is. It is that followers of Jesus reflect Jesus. If you could boil this entire sermon down, it would be that single phrase. That the followers of Jesus reflect Jesus. In other words, the way in which we live our lives, the, the frame of reference in our minds, the commitments of our hearts are such that when people look at us, they don't see just us. They see something radically different about us that says something about Christ. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that the followers of Jesus have such radically different lives, such a different orientation of the heart, such a different presence in the world, that when people see them, they don't actually see Jesus, but they see someone that looks an awful lot like Him. 
And our call this morning is to figure out how can we reflect Jesus? What's the motivation for this reflection? And what does this actually look like in tangible action steps? We've been looking at three different imperative statements. After seeing all of what Paul had said earlier in the indicative about who we are in Christ, we've, we've, we've been baptized with Him, we've been buried with Him, we've been raised with Him. Now we've come to put to death, which was the idea of intentional atrophy. We're to put away respectable sins that we looked at last week. And the third imperative statement is then there are some things that we are to put on. In other words, there are things that we are to do and to become that reflect the person and work of Jesus in a marvelous and beautiful way. And today I want to examine this text to figure out not what we ought not to do, but rather what are we supposed to do? What what is what does God call followers of Jesus to do? And by the way, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the list that we're going to talk about today is absolutely impossible for you to ever do. You can't do a single one of these without coming to the first, acknowledging your need of a Savior. So first, what's the motivation? What's undergirding this? Why should we reflect Jesus? Here's why. Here's the motivation. It is that we are captivated by extravagant grace. I want to add a little word to your vocabulary today. It's the word or the phrase, extravagant grace. Say that with me. Extravagant grace. The motivation for pursuing the list that we'll see in a few moments is rooted in God's sovereign and undeserved intervention in our lives. It was that we were wandering astray from Him, and He came and wooed us and brought Him to Himself The starting point for a motivation to do the list, as we'll talk about in a few moments, is understanding and being captivated by the stunning beauty or the extravagant grace of what God did for us through Christ. It is being overwhelmed with the beauty and awe of His love, being overwhelmed with the overflow of His benevolence to us that serves as the ground upon which then we take up actions like compassion, kindness, patience, long-suffering. The sort of things that we are going to see today don't make sense unless you understand the beauty of what God has done for you. If you don't understand these things about what God has done for you, this list will just become another checklist for you. And you won't get the motivation right, and thereby this list will become drudgery and not your delight. So the whole book of of Colossians is about this motivational piece. This isn't just some subset. This is the heart, meaning when Christ is the core, then you figure out how to live with Him at the center. If you don't understand who He is and the overflowing, extravagant grace of God in your life, then performing these things or doing them by Christ and through the Spirit will simply not make sense. So real obedience springs from hearts that have been captured by God's grace. Or very simply, worship precedes obedience. Worship precedes obedience. Now, we're given three different evidences of God's extravagant grace to us in this text. Verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So there's three evidences. Chosen, holy, and and beloved. Let's look at them. The first one is this. God's extravagant grace was shown to us in that we were chosen. Verse 12 states it very clearly. It says, put on then, and he describes who believers are as God's chosen ones. Now the word chosen is first in the word order intentionally. 
Because the next two words, holy and beloved, are derivatives of the word chosen. Meaning, implicit in God's choice of people for the reception of His grace is a setting upon them of His love and a declaring of them to be righteous. And we'll look at this more later when we look at the words holy and beloved. The word chosen, however, is the Greek word eklektos. And it comes from two words that are put together. One meaning to gather, and the other word meaning from. So the idea is that God gathers from, and that's what his word eklektos, or chosen, means. You can hear the word election in it. In November, we will decide who the President of the United States will be. We will all, I trust, cast a vote and decide and choose one person to be the President. This word, eklektos, is all over the Bible. If you're a note taker, give you a number of references. Here they are. Numbers 11.28. Numbers 11.28. It is used of men of God in salvation history. Men that God chose to use in the accomplishment of his plan. It's also used regarding the land of Palestine in Jeremiah 3.19, describing that God chose that particular land for his people. It also describes Israel as the people of God in Isaiah 43.20, that God chose them to be his precious possession. It's also used to describe Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23, verse 35. Jesus is called the chosen one of God. Further, it is used to describe individual believers. Those of us who have received Christ are called the chosen ones. Romans 8.33. And further, it's used to describe the entire Christian community. All those that have pledged their love to Christ and given their hearts to Him. 1 Peter 2.9. What is the meaning of this word chosen? It is this. It emphasizes the gracious and sovereign initiative by God where he draws men and women to himself for his own glory. Let me say that again. It emphasizes the gracious and sovereign initiative by God where he draws men and women to himself for his own glory. Now, I realize that the idea of being chosen or when we talk about the doctrine of election immediately creates some challenging emotions some concerns, and all sorts of questions, good questions, questions that that push the boundaries of our thinking and our ability to even understand the mind of God. Of all doctrines in the Bible, this is one of the most challenging. But what I'd like you to do for a moment, rather than thinking about all of those questions and all the ramifications and all the things that are related to that, I want you to put aside that for a moment, if you can. And I just want you to consider the real beauty the emotional beauty of what chosen means, regardless of the ground upon which you think that word is based. Okay, Regardless of how you think that word worked out, think with me for a moment the implications of the beauty of what that means. It means this. It means that God, who is sovereign and full of holiness and full of beauty and awe, without any need in himself, saw fit to be personally gracious to you individually when you didn't deserve it. It meant that God orchestrated all of the events leading up to the moment you received Christ. It means that God orchestrated even the events of this very day, where some of you are here today to hear a particular message, and it wasn't by mistake. It means that when I was 13 years old and was sitting in a chapel in Traverse City, Michigan, and I heard a message on hell, and my eyes were open, my heart beat, and there was a yearning for me to come to Christ, that didn't happen by accident. That was by divine and gracious design. 
It means that God sets His love on undeserving, sinful creatures, and He does so intentionally and lovingly and powerfully and, yes, mysteriously. It means that the act of God was meant to generate great love. This way in which God poured out His love was meant to generate great love in our hearts for Him, even if we don't understand it all, yes, even if we can't figure it out, and even if there are questions as to how all of this fits. There are things in the Bible left in tension to bring us to our knees, for us to point our faces upward and say, what an amazing God you really are. And what I want you to do is to realize the beauty of what happened in that moment And the power of this very word chosen to gather from. It means that you were in the midst of a sin-cursed world and God, by His great grace and love, poured out His love upon you even though you didn't deserve it. And the beauty of that is meant to, to, to saturate our hearts with a love for God. It's meant, regardless of all of the questions, for us to be reminded that God set His love on me. When I asked my wife to marry me, I was we were at Dayton University underneath the Carillon Big Bell Tower there, and I'd been gone all summer, traveling with a quartet group as their speaker and sound technician. Took her ring that I had bought and carved out a spot in a journal and put the ring inside the journal, closed it up, and I gave it to her. She opened it up and saw that ring in there, and suddenly she realized why I had run four stoplights that night on the way to this event, (laughs) and realized that this was the moment. And I pulled the ring out, and I got down on my knee, and I said, Sarah Elizabeth Ashbaugh, will you marry me? And at that moment, she didn't say, well, what about all the other girls at Cedarville? It's not very fair to them, is it? I mean, on what basis are you making this decision? Are you sure it's... That didn't even cross her mind, right? She just jumped into my arms and said, Yes! 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 Because I had chosen her. And hear me, God set His love on His children in order to communicate His great and marvelous love. And listen, that is the ground upon which this list now flows. With all the questions and all the things we can't figure out, but... At the bottom line, it is that God was very gracious to people who didn't deserve it. The second word not only is chosen, the word is holy. He says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The word holy means that God declares his people to be righteous, even though they're not. This, my friends, is the scandal of heaven and the power of the gospel. It is that all heaven knows, and so do you, that you are not holy, and God says, I call you righteous. 
And the only reason he calls you righteous is because of the sinlessness and the sufficient death of another who was righteous and is holy and does deserve to be declared fully clean because he is fully clean. And the beauty and the trauma of the gospel is that God declares people to be something that they are not and gives Jesus something he doesn't deserve. He gets death, you get righteousness. He gets curse, you get blessing. He gets punishment, you get freedom. And God declares over his people, you are holy, you are righteous, you are forgiven, you are no longer guilty. And understanding that, friends, becomes the motivation that then leads us to compassion and kindness and patience. This list is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the work of a sovereign God who loves his people, declares them to be righteous. Ephesians 1.4, listen, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect or God's chosen? It is God who justifies. See the linkage? 1 Peter 2.9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a pe- you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, this is all linked together. The implication is, is that God motivates his children towards compassion and patience and long suffering by giving to them extravagant grace. We don't do this list because we can somehow earn God's favor more. No. This list becomes our passion because this is how we put on Christ who is the one that means everything to us because of everything that's wrapped up into chosen and holy. And then third, everything that's wrapped up in the word loved. I mean, it seems obvious, doesn't it? God set his love on us. Stunning to think. God's choosing and His justifying makes us the recipients of His love. Sometimes people talk about God's love in a way that makes me a little nervous. They, they, they say things like, you know, you're really valuable, and you know that because God loves you. And I'm just like, I know what you're saying, but I don't like how you're saying that. Or they say something, I heard a song last night on the radio, and I, I listened, and I was like, Is it, are they really saying this? The text said this, you'd rather die than live without me. I'm like, ah, I don't know if that's real good. You'd rather die. Talk about Jesus. Jesus would rather die than live without me. And I just want to remind you, God was not lonely. Okay? He wasn't needy. He wasn't looking around going, yeah, what should we do, guys? You know, God isn't doing that. He's perfectly content in the triune Godhead. The real point of being chosen and being declared holy and being loved is not about us. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4, B through 6. In love he predestined us for the adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here's the key phrase. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. So why has God done all of these things? Answer, to the praise of his glorious grace. God set his love on us, not because we are so special. 
God set His love on us because of how special He is. He set His love on undeserving sinners not to make much of us, but to make much of Himself. He wants us to be mirrors of His grace. He wants us to be conduits of His beautiful compassion so that all of the universe would look at us and say, why does God love them so? And the answer isn't because they're so great. The answer is, we don't know. (laughs) But God's very gracious and kind. That's the answer. He called us beloved not to affirm our worth. No. He called us beloved to accentuate His glory. To display upon us the immeasurable bounty of His goodness and to extend to us such extravagant grace that all of the universe sits up and says, Wow, God is really awesome. So you are described as chosen and holy and beloved. And this captivation with extravagant grace like this, it serves as the motivation for what follows. So understand, if you get this and you get it into your heart, then what follows in the list just makes sense. If you divorce this understanding of chosen, holy, and beloved from the list, it'll just become another list of do's and don'ts. And that's exactly what Paul doesn't want to have happen, because that's what was happening in Colossae. They were having all sorts of other things that they could do and become, and they had divorced it from Christ, they had drifted from Jesus, Jesus drifted from the essence of who he is and what he had done. And Paul takes us back to the core, back to the center, and reminds us that worship precedes obedience. Understanding who Christ is then translates into acts that fit with his heart. We sing this truth this way. And can it be, third verse, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You don't rise and follow Christ unless your dungeon flames with the quickening ray that extends from the eye of God. But when your dungeon lights... (laughs) And when you know it is God's benevolent grace who shines into that dungeon, then you are motivated like nothing else to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is your all, your everything. Without Him, you have nothing. So why? Why do we reflect Christ? Because of the beauty of extravagant grace. So that then leads us to what then reflects the person of Jesus. What looks like Him? You see, people who are captivated and and, and entranced with this amazing grace of God extended to us then put on things that fit with Jesus. we, We put on literally the clothing of Christ. We've been so radically changed that the sum total of all of our lives is this beautiful symphony of praise to God where our lives are continually looking more and more like Christ so that our children see our lives as living Bibles. Our 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 new believers see how to follow in righteousness because they see what Jesus is like as evidenced in how we live. And Paul gives us an incredible list here of things that fit with the very heart and person and work of Jesus. The first one is this, compassion. The word means heartfelt graciousness. Do any of you remember what the King James translated this as? 
Bowels of mercy. That's great, isn't it? A bit confusing. Bowels of mercy. Why would they say that? Well, because the original language, the first word, there's two words here that relate to the word compassion. It, it means internal and then kindness. So in their mind, you know, internal meant your bowels, right? And, and that's not how we usually, you know, express love to each other. Man, baby, I am feeling it in my bowels for you today. I mean, we just, we just don't say it like that, right? We'll just leave that one right there. But we use the word heart like that, right? Oh, my heart just so full. My heart is so full. We don't say my large intestine. It's just so, we don't say that. And that's what, it means the inside of you, bowels of compassion, a heart of of mercy. And here's the idea. The, the word compassion, it means this, this concern for other people. It means that within inside you, that you look at life, you see it through a lens of compassion. So that you see people through a different lens than people who don't know Christ. You see people through a lens of mercy. And here's why. Because God has been so merciful to you. And the more you understand God's mercy, the better you'll be able to be merciful to other people. When your heart begins to grow closed and cold and hardened, don't be surprised if you start to have a hardened heart towards people in the community, in the marketplace, around the world. Listen, one of the reasons that we need to be concerned what's happening in our city, all over the city of Indianapolis, is because God has been very concerned about our plight and has been very gracious to us. And we would not only be foolish, we would be, I think, almost blasphemous. To be very content of what happens here on 96th in town and never be concerned about anyone else's troubles or any other problems. The city's problems. The nation's problems. We need to see those through a lens of our problems. The second word is the word kindness. The word means an abundance of goodness. You could translate it as generosity or, or, or goodness. It's the way that God deals with sinners. In fact, in Luke 6, Jesus says that we're to be kind and gracious to the unkind and evil. He says because God is gracious to the unkind and evil. Meaning that there are millions of people who woke up in our country today, this very Sunday morning, who have no thought of God, could care less about Him, and think they've got the world by a tail, and God still gave them breath in their lungs to wake up. He still allowed their pancakes and sausage to be digested in their system. He allowed them to get up and drink a cup of coffee and not be struck dead. He allowed them to think and live and move. He was kind and gracious to wicked, despicable people. And Jesus says, if he's like that, and he knows their hearts, and by the way, he's like that to you, and he knows your heart, then shouldn't you also be kind and gracious to the evil ones? So what is the ground? What's the basis of being kind to people who are unkind and caring to those who don't seem to deserve it? The answer is you are rooted in the gospel and you come back to the fact that this is the way that God has treated me. Compassion, kindness. The next one is the word humility. Now there's not a single person in this building who doesn't need to work on this one. We've heard this word before. Chapter 2, verse 18 and 2.23, Paul talked about the shallow humility of the false teachers. It seemed like they were humble, but the reality was they weren't. See, true humility is a Christ-like humility. 
And it involves understanding two things. One, who God is and who you are. So that's again why worship is so essential. Because when you get God right, then you're able to get you right. Most understanding flaws of... Most lack of understandings about who you are and flaws of your understanding about who you are in this world and pride comes from a lack of understanding about who God is. And so a theological problem about who God is is going to translate into a practical problem about who you are. And what Paul is calling us to here is a mentality of reflecting who Jesus really is and what he's all about, which involves, according to Philippians 2.4, a consideration of others as more important than ourselves, And that's a yeoman's task. A willingness to submit to others, even if they aren't worthy of our submission. And a commitment to obey God, Philippians 2.8. You see, humility is both action and attitude. It means that followers of Jesus, hear me, don't have to get the credit. They don't have to be honored or thanked. They they are free from the need to be somebody because everything they are is wrapped up in Jesus. It means you can celebrate your inadequacy. You can wake up and go, woo-hoo-hoo, inadequate today. Yeah. You can walk into the office and someone says, who messed this up? I did. Yeah. Woo-hoo, I did. You can be relentlessly owning your faults. Who's to blame? I am. Who's the worst sinner in the world? Me. How do you know that? Because I know my own heart. Inadequacy is the ground upon which we came to the cross in the first place. It is that we were inadequate to meet our own spiritual needs. We couldn't mediate ourselves and God. And it is the ground upon which we live for the rest of our lives. The problem is that some of us tend to scoot away from that inadequacy ground. And we like the comfort of feeling like... We are somebody. Next, meekness means power under control. doesn't mean weakness. Meek people aren't weak. No, there's a different kind of strength. In fact, some of the most powerful people I've ever known were meek people. Jim Greer, for instance, would be one of these people. In seminary, a snotty-nosed first-year freshman would ask some dumb question in class, and I would watch him smile and he flips his Bible open, and I'm going, uh-oh, here comes the thunder, right? And he would say something like, oh, that would be true, except for this passage. And everyone's like looking over there, going, oh, oh, oh. And the more you know, the less you have to be right. It's power under control. It's being gracious to people who mm, have less knowledge, less information, or maybe say things in the wrong way. It's It's choosing when you are attacked, or in an undeserving manner, stabbed in the back with criticism to be gentle. Moses, in Numbers 12 and verse 3, when he's attacked by Miriam and Aaron, appeals to God to save their lives. And it's interesting that Moses even writes of himself that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, I don't know how that fits with humility, but we'll leave that up to him. (laughs) Meekness means that you pray for those who abuse you. It's tested when you are wronged. Meekness is in play when you are defensive or when you're offended. That's when it matters. And to put this on, friends, means that you look really different than most people. Word patience. (laughs) Closely linked to meekness, but it relates to, listen to this, putting up with those who have exasperating conduct. (laughs) 
You're like, yeah, I live with one of those. That's right. Put up with those who have exasperating conduct and you choose to not fly in a rage or have a desire to get even. That's why the King James renders it as long-suffering. You have some people in your life like that? I got news for you. God sent them into your life for a reason. I think God specifically chooses exasperating people to put in our path because He wants us to learn this lesson, right? You know, you know what I mean by exasperating people? People who you're just like, oh. I mean, you see them and emotionally, you can't do it on the outside, you know, because if you did that, they'd know what you're really thinking. They come up to you like, oh, it's you again, you know, it's just like, oh. Right? But inside, you see you on the caller ID and you're like, oh, you know. You're just exasperated, or your your kids tell you a story and they go on and on and on and on, and you and your wife shoot each other a look like, oh, you know, I just can't believe this. It's ex- you know why those people are there? They are there to beat long suffering into you. That's why. So walk in the office on Monday and greet that guy who you're like, oh, I go, hey man, I know why you are here. <laughs> I know why you're in my life. Oh yeah, why? Never mind. You tell. <laughs> Long-suffering means that God's going to work through Christ. He's going to make you just patient with those that are exasperating. How do you do with that? There's a lot of exasperating people in the world. And hear me, there's a lot of exasperated people, parents, mothers, bosses. Oh, the beauty of giving up this statement. I don't deserve this. Oh, the beauty of giving up. I don't need this today. Really. So you know what you need. Thank God that you're not in control of that. (laughs) The next two words I put together, forbearance and forgiveness. ESV renders this as bearing with one another. Not Not a bad translation. I like the word forbearance a little better. Here's why. Forbearance means that you put up with each other, you endure each other, you embrace the suffering that comes with dealing with people. Okay? So check this out. Whenever there's two people, there's always going to be tension. Okay? That's just the reality of it. One of the things that I say when I do weddings to the couple that's going to get married is this. Look, you will never know how selfish you are until you get married. You think you're selfish now? Just wait. When you get married, it brings out a self-centeredness in you that's unbelievable. Forbearance means that we choose to not be the kind of person who is easily annoyed, who's quickly put out, easily offended, quick to draw conclusions. Oh, I know what they meant by that. (laughs) Someone who everyone has to walk around eggshells around them. Know anyone like that? Are you like that? You know what the problem with forbearance is? The problem is that people who struggle with it generally don't know it because people around them are afraid to tell them. And you know why? Because they're easily offended. Quickly put out, easily annoyed, and you have to walk around eggshells around them. That's why. So here's a little assignment for you. Don't you love it when you get assignments from church? Go home and ask your family today. So regarding the forbearance thing, you guys have to walk around eggshells with me? One time I gave my boys the freedom to do that. We were camping and I said to them, boys, I just want you, anything that you see in dad's life that you just were like, this dad's really bugs me, would you tell me? And one of my boys told me really quick and I was like, okay, that's, that's great. This is, this is a good thing. And my other son was like, no, there's nothing, dad. 
And I was like, no, 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 no. Dad's not that good. No, no, no. What? He said, no, 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 there's nothing, Dad. And I could tell he was like, no. And I said, listen, honey, I promise you, Dad won't, I won't, I won't be upset with you. And, and Mom's here to protect you, just so you know. <laughs> I didn't say that, but. He was, I said, what, what? And he said, well, Dad, there's, sometimes you, you come home and, I don't know, you're kind of grumpy. I said, really? And I just, I don't want to be around you. And he started to cry. And I was like, thank you, son. Daddy, daddy needed to hear that. That's good. It hurts, but it's good. <laughs> right? We need people, even kids, to speak truth because we, we tend to not forbear. Marriage needs to be built on forbearance. You're not going to be perfect, but you choose to overlook things. Forgiveness is the other word. It means that you choose to not hold someone hostage. You choose to treat them as if they've never hurt you. You treat them as if there's no record of wrong. You treat them as if there's no grudge, no bitterness, no problem. Think of how many marriages, relationships, and ministries could be radically different if people simply practice forbearance and forgiveness. This needs to be like two pillars in our homes. Forgiveness, we clear wrongs easily here. We forbear. We don't have to deal with everything. We just cover a lot of things. We cover things in love. We choose to put up with each other. And then the final word is this. It's the word love. Paul says, and above all these, meaning here's the crowning jewel, the crowning grace, we are to put on this love, which does what? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends or fails. Jesus said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. And what Paul is saying here is that the mark of the body of Christ is to be that we love one another more than we hate how different we are and how annoying we can be with each other. It means that we choose to love each other even though we're different. And we do that in marriage and in homes and ministry. We do that across the board. And we just say, you don't have to be like me. Thank God you're not. But we have to love each other and love each other in the centrality of who Jesus is. And out of the overflow of our love for Christ comes this beautiful harmony, this unity in which the body of Christ says we're different, yes, but together we make wonderful music together. I'm not a musician. I sing, I used to play the trombone, but I know this. Here's me. Here's Jermaine Cheney. Here's Jay Powell. Different notes, man. All by themselves, they sound different. You put them together. Yeah. Isn't that good? That's all I know. There you go. The point is, is that each individual note has its own tune, its own song, its own particular sound. And when you put them together, it makes something far more attractive when it's all together than when it's just on their own. And that, my friends, is supposed to be the body of Christ. All unified under this sense of this wonderful, extravagant grace that God has poured out upon us. So when you look at this list, I mean, what is your thought? My thought is i got a lot of work to do. And that's a huge list. 
I mean, just take one of them. That's a lifetime of figuring out how to do that. I mean, compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. By ourselves, that list would be absolutely impossible. And I don't know about you, but I am very grateful that reflecting Jesus doesn't depend upon me. Because I couldn't do that list. So where does reflecting Jesus come from? It springs from a heart that has been so captivated by the radical change that Jesus has brought in us that then out of the overflow of this passionate desire for Jesus to be glorified through the change of my life, I then embrace things like compassion and kindness and humility and meekness. And I embrace them because this is how my heart has been changed And the reason why God has poured out this beautiful love upon me is to be able to make much of himself, not much of me. So here's the question. He changed you, right? But why? Did he do it so you could have a better marriage? Did he do it so you could have better kids? Did it so you could be blessed beyond your dreams? Why did he change you? Here's the answer. He changed you so you could reflect Jesus giving him maximum glory. You were chosen, you were holy, you were beloved. He did all of this. He radically took your life. He plucked you out of the pursuits of your own sinful heart. He set his love upon you, declared you to be righteous. And now he says to you, if I have loved you this way, so then you ought to be the kind of people that are like my son. I bought you. I saved you. I redeemed you. I called you. I loved you. I brought you into my arms. I called you my own. Even when you were squirming all the way in and I held you close to my heart. And he says, now reflect the beauty of who my son is and be like him in the world. Our world desperately needs to see people whose lives have been so radically changed by Jesus that then extend into how we treat other people, how we do marriage, how we do life, because at the ground of who we are is this unbelievable worship. I have been changed by Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have seen fit to radically reorient our hearts. And we want to acknowledge today that that grace has been so extravagant that our hearts have been captured by you. We thank you for the unbelievable change that has taken place through the person of Jesus. And that College Park Church is made up of a host of people whose single testimony is, my life was changed by Christ. And then you call us to love and to be like Jesus. And so, Father, we want you to be honored and glorified in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My life, as yours, was radically transformed by the person of Jesus. Before I met him, my heart was filled with idols of every kind. But when he came and bought me and sought me, Jesus Jesus became my Lord to the glory of God.